Okay, welcome back everybody. Um, so this is going to be our last session um, of the two day conference. Um, so thanks very much for for joining us. Um, we, we really hope that you've enjoyed the event so far. Um, so we're going to have um, a, a talk now. Um, and then um, after this, we'll have um, about half an hour or so um, to wrap things up on the conference. Um, and we'll have um, a kind of um, interactive period um, when attendees can kind of reflect on any aspect of the of the two days. Uh, I think that um, Professor Martin Polly is going to pose some um, interesting kind of thought provoking questions um, for us all. Um, so it will be a chance to kind of pose questions which have which have come up not just in Martin's talk, but um, kind of reflections or thoughts on any issues raised over the last couple of days. Um, but I will now formally introduce our keynote speaker, Professor Martin Polly. Um, Martin is the director of the International Centre for Sports History and Culture and professor of history at De Montfort University, Leicester. He's previously taught in both history and sports studies at the University of Winchester and the University of Southampton. And he's the author of Moving the Goalpost of Sport and Society since 1945, Sports History, A Practical Guide, and as part of English Heritage's Played in Britain project, the British Olympics, Britain's Olympic Heritage, 1612 to 2012. And he's currently working on the long history of the Cotswold Olympics. Um, and his keynote is intriguingly titled From Wandsworth to Woodhorn via Wenlock and Points in Between, an Olympic and Paralympic Research Journey, 1987 to 2021. Over to you, Martin. Uh, thanks for that. It's a, a pleasure to be here. It's been uh, a real blast being involved in organising this event with colleagues from the different agencies and organisations involved. And it's wonderful to see it uh, coming to fruition now. And I think it's quite salutary for me, obviously, realise you're get, getting on a bit when you propose a keynote title with the word journey in it and you can get away with it. What I want to do here is really just to give some personal reflections, hopefully many of which will resonate wider or indeed set up greater food for thought uh, about my research journey of using Olympic and to a lesser extent, but importantly, Paralympic collections since I started on my PhD back in 1987. I want to stress that I take a very Catholic with a small c reading of the word Olympic here, and I am including reflect on some of the pre-Kubatan events uh, that took the name Olympic, Olympic with a K or Olympian, such as the Cotswolds, Wenlock, Liverpool, the National Olympian Festivals, the Morpeth Olympics. I'll say more about some of them as I go along. Um, I also aim to make some connections with topics that have come up in the last two days. Uh, you may see some of the joins when I, it seems like I might be shoehorning in something that um, Catherine or Vicky or Elaine said, but it's been great to be able to hear those, those comments. And then as Raf says, I want to end with a few um, sort of questions I think that are challenging for all of us, both in researchers and those working in uh, the, the glam sector, to, uh, to consider and then move on to maybe some bigger questions. Um, I'd like to also very quickly thank Heather for giving me last minute advice on my lighting just then. Um, as Raf's invited it, I will just quickly explain the title. Um, Wandsworth was the home of the British Olympic Association up until maybe four or five years ago. Sorry, I haven't found the exact date. And so when I started my work using the BRA's archive, I had to go to their head office in, in Wandsworth. I'll say more about that later. Woodhorn is the location of part of the Northumberland Archive Service, um, an old colliery site that's now been turned into an industrial heritage museum and also one part of the Northumberland County Archives, uh, where I went for my work on the 
uh, on the Morpeth Olympics, which went on from the 1880s until the 1950s. And then Wenlock is, of course, the headquarters of the Wenlock Olympian Society, um, and they are the custodians of some of the original sources. And the, the more observant amongst you will notice that Wenlock, the 2012 mascot, is staring over my right shoulder at you all. Um, so I just thought it was nice to sort of, you know, sort of map things out a little bit to, um, to give a bit of a structure to that journey. So when I started my PhD way back in 1987 um, on sport and diplomacy, basically for UK Foreign Office involvement in international sport, it was obvious from very early on that the Olympics would form a major part of that. Not the only part, plenty on football and other sports, but they would be a major part. Um, and uh, I'm currently working on, as Ralph said, a long history of the Cotswold Olympics from the early 17th century to now. And I'm looking forward, as I'm sure many of us are, to uh, full archive and library access again. In between the, that start in 1987 and now, I've researched various aspects of Olympic Games in British his history, for different projects, and through different lenses. I've used lenses um, such as uh, diplomacy, amateurism and professionalism, gender, venues and infrastructure, legacies, including accidental legacies, heritage, community and locality. I've also done some work on the um, Paralympics, particularly the, the influence of Stoke Mandeville Hospital in the, uh, and Ludwig Gutmann in the origins and evolution of wheelchair sports that Vicky has told us so much about, and Ian, of course, yesterday. Um, and I've also done some work, obviously, on a lot of those variety, those, those, that variety of things, the Olympic, the play, the Olympian Games, and so on. It's been a very um, long and winding research journey amongst collections across the country. And I've chosen this picture of the, um, some members of the British Olympic team at the 1908 Olympic opening ceremony at White City. Uh, as a sort of kind of keynote for my keynote, if you like, because it brings so much together. Not only are they on the start of a journey themselves, and there's a lovely personal resonance, and I went to school about a quarter of a mile from the White City site, although I hasten to add a lot later than 1908. But this picture, I think, brings together so many of the strands that have um, occupied me in that journey. There's the diplomacy here, evident most famously in the waving flag. Uh, and the crises that were caused by flags at the opening ceremony um, of the 1908 Olympic Games. And uh, you know, Luke has obviously uh, written about that and mentioned some of it yesterday. There's a wonderful, this picture is a great way into the definition of national units as, um, the, as Olympic teams, which were really formalised in London in 1908. This picture takes us into amateurism. And it certainly takes us into the gendered history of the Olympics. There were women at the 1908 Olympics more than ever before. Most of them were British, but none of them are present in this team, which is made up primarily of track athletes and swimmers. Um, this picture gives us a fantastic view of the infrastructure, the venue that were built for 1908. Um, and beyond just noting the fact that it's the White City Stadium, it takes us into two side points, really. One is the complete... <laughs> the almost complete absence of interest, uh, as evident in the, the minute crowd there. Yes, I know there were bigger crowds in the grandstand, but this was hardly a sellout event. And up in the top left there, the advert for Shreps reminds us that um, current Olympic models relating to advertising sponsorship and partnership are, are exactly that, they're, they're recent and current. So there's plenty of commercial investment 
um, in, a, in a much more in-your-face way, the further back we go in Olympic history. And of course, this picture takes us into accidental legacies. White City Stadium was meant to be demolished at the end of 1908 after the Olympics. Um, athletes liked it. it. It then became adapted and through various things, Greyhounds, Speedway, um, football, Billy Graham, uh, and a whole range of other things that actually lasted until the 1980s. So there are so many themes in my work uh, that, that I can sort of root, if you like. But what I want to do is then uh, reflect on my journey through three themes. I want to start off um, in a very, perhaps predictable way, celebrating the diversity of some of the collections I've used. I then want to consider the rise of official interest from, particularly from the glam um, sector uh, in Olympic and Paralympic history, because as we've seen, this hasn't always been the case. It's been great to have so many um, advocates and indeed evangelists of this. And again, Ian deserves, I think, special mention for the amazing work he's done with uh, Paralympic collections. And we look at the rise of official interest. And then thirdly, I want to consider some aspects of the impact of um, the digital shift, which has been so obvious during my career. Okay, so first off, the diversity of collections then, and this, uh, hopefully, this, this image down the stacks at Collindale with one of those wonderful newspaper trolls will bring back a lot of um, reminiscences for many people out there and probably bemusement from the younger people in the crowd. So every historian has their own journey. And for some of you today here, that journey has been incredibly international and wonderful. Mine's been relatively national and it's come from, as I say, diplomatic history based in the Foreign Office archives at what was then the Public Record Office in Kiev, now obviously rebranded as the National Archives. And it's moved from that to the distinctly local and community work that I'm now doing on Cotswold Olympics. And reflecting on what this journey has involved and how we can find insights from it on Olympic and Paralympic history is, uh, is a, has been a really great exercise. I've loved uh, doing, putting this together over the last couple of weeks. I want to just you know, name check a few sites, if you like, and talk about some of the things I've found there. So it started for me, I guess, very much at Kew in the public record office, as it was, using archives from the Foreign Office, the Home Office, the Cabinet Office, um, and uh, Colonial Office, and also the Metropolitan Police. I remember the days of, and trying not to sound too much like an old geezer here, of not just when it was called the Public Record Office, but when those who wanted to could smoke in the downstairs area, when the refreshments, the only refreshments on offer were pretty much the, one of the worst coffee machines I've ever had the misfortune to encounter. Um, my early work included a research at the British Library uh, in the round reading room for published and uh, press uh, for published sources and at Collindale itself, obviously, for press resources. And when I was last in the um, media room at uh, the, the new British Library site, I was delighted to see that some of the Collindale trolleys have survived. I've used a variety of university archives and special collections, Birmingham University for the Amateur Athletic Association papers and for the Harold Abrahams archive, the University of East London for the British Olympic Association archive, uh, the University of Westminster, contact with Elaine and her colleague Anna McNally for material from the Polytechnic Harriers relating mainly to the 1908 Olympics, but I've also used some uh, work I've done on um, DNB entries for uh, Polytechnic alumni. Um, Churchill College, Cambridge, for Philip Noel Baker's paper, um, sporting administrator and politician, 
um, King's College Cambridge for the papers of the art uh, artist, architect and designer C.R. Ashby, who has a tiny but important role in the long history of the Cotswold Olympics. And while I haven't used the, um, the special collections on my professional doorstep, those that Catherine has told us so much about at uh, De Montfort University, um, I've, it's been a real pleasure to be involved with um, helping Catherine to expand that and a special mention to my colleagues, um, Neil Carter, Matt Taylor, Heather Dictor, and our honorary research fellow, Sue Barton, uh, who've all been influential in helping Catherine make those contacts, make those networks to get that material in. Um, and so I think that the, the role of university special collections is absolutely precious. I've used a variety of county and city archives and local studies collections from across the country, Hampshire for the 1948 Olympics, looking at uh, the modern pentathlon in Aldershot, for example, London Metropolitan Archives from 1908, and various London Borough local studies collections for um, newspaper coverage in particular of, of, of events in, the, in those areas. Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire archives for Lord Desborough's papers split between the places in which he had two homes that is there. Shropshire archives for the Wenlock papers and material on Wenlock. Gloucestershire archives for the Cotswold Olympics, Northumberland and Woodhorn for Morpeth. Um, randomly, some bits of the Cotswolds have made their way into Leicestershire through landowning uh, families and local studies collections at Sandudno, um, where the sailing regatta for one of the Liverpool Olympian festivals took place at Flandudno and they have some materials from there. I've used various private archives of, in which I would class the British Olympic Association when they were based at Wandsworth. Stoke Mandeville Hospital, where I did some research in probably about 2009, so before the wonderful work that Vicky and her colleagues have been doing, and where some of the materials were literally just in boxes at the hospital itself. The Wenlock Olympian Society, where the some of the materials are still kept in a locked cupboard in a locked room, um, and similarly for the Cotswold Olympics under the, the care of the Chipping Camden Historical and Archaeological Society. And I've used archives belonging to some museums, but very recently on this, particularly the National Art Library at the Victoria and Albert Museum for Ashby's papers relating to the, um, his involvement in sport in the Cotswolds, and similarly the Court Barn Museum in Chipping Camden for the same project. So just a quick kind of whistle stop through then, if you like, of that journey. Okay, so what? So, what? so I've, I've travelled the country a bit. Um, what themes emerge from this list to celebrate diversity? The most obvious, and I guess in some ways the most important, is the one I'm going to spend least time on, because I know that I'm preaching to the converted here. But obviously, we the archive is essential to give us a proper background. Yes, we all know that the archive is subjective. Yes, we all know the archive is an ide ideological construct. Yes, we all know huge amounts of stuff that matters and never makes it into an archive. But that being said, if we don't use what we put in archives, we will never know the proper backgrounds for the stories we're trying to tell and to the debates we're trying to interpret. So I'll kind of take that one as read, if that's okay. Moving on as to so what and what emerges from this list of diversity is, um, I think, one of the real pleasures as a historian, it's finding those, those tiny stories in unexpected places, those frequently comments in the margins, the, the, you know, the, the, the oddments, the ephemera, the, the, the little things that give you insights to the human stories behind these collections. And I've just picked out a few from, from, this, uh, from my research career. Um, finding things like the, the, the legal agreement between Lord Gainsborough, the owner, and C.R. Ashby um, in, Chipping, in Chipping Camden, that's ended up in the Leicestershire Record Office. 
that forms a tiny but essential part in the long history of Olympic Games. This was the lease under which Ashby built a swimming pool uh, for the workers uh, on his, uh, his guild and the people of Chipping Camden, at which he then hosted some aquatic sports that he rebranded as the Cotswold Olympics. It's a revival that didn't take off. It only happened once. It is part of a, a long um, train uh, covering over four centuries. There's little things like this. This is, is a, one of my favourite images I, I came across with Simon Inglis when we were working on the British Olympics. This is from the National Archives. It's from the Stationers Hall um, collection where um, companies apply for copyrights. It's in the, in the, the series copy. Um, and it's a, a design for Olympic artwork by Gamages. You can just see their name um, on the stadium roof in the back there. Um, to promote their sports goods. And it's basically an incredibly crude, wonderful cut and paste job, photo montage of um, Olympic um, competitors uh, spread across the, the, the infield at White City there. And again, it's wonderful for the imagination that's gone into this, the creativity, but also again, as a reminder of the very long links between commercial interests and the Olympic Games. It's little things like the temporary members book for the Polytechnic Harriers, which, um, which Elaine has already shown today. And unfortunately, don't have a slide of that, she's, she's shown it, where um, visiting athletes coming to London for the 1908 Olympic Games would sign in so that they could use the Poly's resources and training while they were in London. And again, that was something that Luke mentioned when he was talking about the importance of uh, the local in any Olympic history. It's things like this. This is from... Um, 1948 from the, the um, Morpeth Herald uh, newspaper in the Morpeth in, in Woodhorn in Northumberland. And this is local press coverage of the 67th Morpeth Olympics in 1948. With the headline another page in the history of the Morpeth Olympic Games, we have the story of as part of another year and with it starting another page in the long In some respects, it's rather unfortunate that the Great Olympic Games in London crashed. And it's just so wonderful, I think, to see the Great Olympic Games, you know, the one that sets itself up as the Olympic, which to me, and this is one of the challenges I want to set up at the end, you know, those really serious questions about historical names. Um, how those Great Olympics are seen through the lens of people who'd actually set up their Olympic Games um, in the early 1880s when Kubaton was just about out of short trousers. So readdressing the lens from the local to the global, I think, is fantastic. It's little things like Harold Abraham's letter in the BOA archives, urging them in 1935, urging the BOA to boycott Berlin 1936, um, saying that, that any claims that the Olympics make to be about um, in, improving relations between countries and in, in being about fair play and, and rights were being smashed by what the Nazis were doing. And that, that's so interesting seeing his um, perspective on that, which is an Olympian as a British Jew, and knowing that he himself then, when not only was there no boycott, but went to, to Berlin to report on it. And so reclaiming that piece of evidence um, to put into the story of Abraham's career, I think was a really fascinating moment. On a similar level, maybe at uh, Churchill College in Cambridge, going through Philip Noel Baker's um, correspondence and diaries and finding some of his musings after he'd competed at Stockholm in 1912, which clearly brought together his, um, his uh, Quaker background and his obvious pacifism with that, and how he brought international sport into that mix and how that became one of his core values 
for the rest of his life. Um, and he remains, of course, the only person to have won both an Olympic medal and a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, it's in things like condolence letters to Lord Desborough, from IOC, the um, founder and first chairman of the British Lit Association, condolence letters to him from other IOC members on the loss of two of his sons in the First World War. It's the marginal comment from Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden in 1935, when a man in Tokyo urges London to support Tokyo's bid for the 1940 Olympics because it will improve Anglo-Japanese relations, which Anthony Eden handwrites in the margin, for heaven's sake, let us support this. I could even run in the mile myself. Um, it's about going into the 1908 marathon records and finding out how many police and from which divisions there were uh, on duty along the course on race day, and which pubs along the route were the refreshment stations for the athletes. It's about this. I apologise. In some ways, I apologise for this. This is a bad photo, but then I think it's great because it shows you the poster in, in context with the um, wonderful archive weights. Again, if we're talking about the physicality of the archive, handling those snakes and weights, one of the things that I missed. Um, this is from the Shropshire Archives, and there's a poster for the 1860 Shrewsbury Show. And we can see that right at the bottom there, Olympic Games were included alongside quasi medieval pageants. And again, please remember this was three years before Peter was born, born. And so it's this blend of the personal and the sporting, the political and the organisational, this ability to switch lenses from the local to the global, this willingness to find the expected and the unexpected in the export. It's these things that I think allow us as historians to tell our story, to make our connection and to link Olympic and Paralympic history to its wider context. Using context as my link, I want to segue on then to think of the, the next thing that this all tells us. And that's something I've really missed during, during lockdown. And it's about how seeing the archives, sorry, seeing collections in their proper context can really help to allow us to reset the Olympics and Paralympics as processes undertaken by people in organisations. That's a real mouthful. So let me illustrate that with an example. The best example I can give you really is from Stoke Mandeville, where I say I, I researched there in 2010, uh, sorry, 2009-10, uh, with some visits hosted wonderfully by Martin McElheaton of Wheelpower. And physically going to the hospital and physically meeting Martin um, in a whole resource set up for uh, wheelchair athletes and for wheelchair sport. It's just that, you know, absolute kick up the backside reminder um, about looking at the world through different lenses. Um, excuse, you know, excuse the digression if you feel this is inappropriate, but even just meeting him in the cafe and having a nice lunch with Martin, needing to pop to the gents, and then realising I was in a building where gents for the able-bodied were in the minority and I had to go searching for them. It's just to be able to remember that this is the route of the Paralympics. For an able-bodied person, it's just such an important, um, obvious but important lesson. And in looking at some of the materials that, that they had um, at the time, most of which I hope and believe have now gone um, to, to um, Vicky's collection, uh, where we found records of inter-ward contests between wheelchair um, patients, an honours board for darts and archery, um, in boxes, literally in boxes, that were mixed in with textbook photographs of um, dissected damaged spinal cords. Um, you know, this wasn't good archive practice, but it was damn good for reminding us of the actual context out of which wheelchair sport grew out of that medical and therapeutic 
uh, nature of Gutman's wheelchair games. Um, it's about going to Much Wenlock and doing my research there in the offices of the, the Wenlock Olympian Society that are still in the building, Corn Exchange, where William Penny Brooks in 1851 set up the Wenlock um, Olympian Society as a branch of his reading group. And I thought you've got the frontage of the, the Corn Exchange and then the plaque on the, uh, on the outside commemorating this. And you know, I was doing my research literally behind one of those windows in that big picture, which from memory now. Yeah, there's nothing like actually being in the building where the history was made to come back 150 years later and research that history. And um, the the one that I've forgotten on here, but because Elaine showed it earlier, I'll bring it in as well, is, is going to do my research in the um, Westminster University of Westminster archive on Jack London, first um, black athlete to to win a medal for Britain in the Olympics in 1928. Uh, Polytechnic alumni and climbing those stairs at the, at the front of the building there, going past that honours board that's built right into the staircase there and seeing his name on it, seeing Jack London's name on it before then going to research him again. It's making those wonderful uh, contextual links. I think that's been such an important part of that. But yes, while um, yeah, the arguments about having national centres for research are all well and good, I can see some advantages to that. Uh, I would fear the sort of loss of those contexts that we might have as a result. Okay, so my second thing is um, to talk about the rise of glam interest. And I make no apology here. This is my personal reflection. One of the things I'd be really fascinated to hear more about is am I missing stuff in this? Um, in his history of sport in France, uh, Dick Holt recalls how when he ordered books on sport at the Bibliothèque Nationale, the librarian gave him a withering look and seems to suggest that if he was interested in sport, he should stop wasting the library's time and put on his trainers and go for a run to the park. Now, I had a similar moment to this. I thought putting up a photograph of um, footballers involved in gesture politics would be quite an interesting one today. Um, I had an interesting moment from that myself in the National Library of Wales in 1989. Um, I spent the morning researching this match. Um, Germany v England 1938 in Berlin, uh, famously where the uh, UK ambassador Neville Henderson requested the England team to make an Nazi salute during national anthems in order to create a good atmosphere with the Germans, which they did. They went on to beat them 63. Um, and I spent that one morning in the National Library of Wales researching this from books about Matthews, Stanley Matthews, and some of his memoirs to see the way in which he actually kind of changed sound to this um, as he got older to the point where he then became very embarrassed by this photo, but in his early memoir, published just before the war, it really wasn't a big deal. So I spent the morning with a load of books on Stanley Matthews, went for lunch, came back and ordered up some books about appeasement, so the, the, the high diplomacy of the appeasement period, so I could contextualise it. And it was the same librarian, and yeah, I went to the accent, as he handed them to me, he looked, he said, with a, you know, clearly um, a, a, an element of derision, um, this is a bit of a change from Stanley Matthews, isn't it? Well, I think the British Library hosting the event that we're in yesterday and today tells us something about how far we have come in 30 years um, of the glam um, sector, not just taking an interest and taking it seriously, but doing so much amazing work in collecting, um, preserving and making accessible all sorts of materials on sports history. And um, it's clear that the glam has this amazing role in protecting and disseminating them. And again, Ian's stories yesterday of how so much has been destroyed in relation to 
Paralympic history and the predecessors of the Paralympics makes for really made for really sobering listening about what losses there were before the archive sector became interested in. And again, I know I'm preaching to the converted here because we're all part of this project. Now, for me, and this is where at the end I'd be really interested to know if I'm missing something here. For me, partly this is down to that general growth of an interest in sport, which my predecessors at the centre were obviously a major force in that. Um, but it, it, it is clear that 2012 London hosting the 2012 Olympics and Paralympics was a major factor in that. Um, I would say that, wouldn't I, because I wouldn't have had the book commission from English Heritage without it. But I think the classic example for me is the British Olympic Association. So they, the, when I started work on BOA stuff, they were in the BOA's office. This is in Wandsworth Plain. Um, access was only by appointment. There was clear vetting going on. Uh, I remember in my naivety as a young, foolish PhD student, writing them to them to ask for access getting a letter back to say, that sounds fine, give us a phone call, so ringing, and being asked by the member of staff there, who obviously wasn't a librarian or an archivist, uh, what I was interested in. And I very foolishly said, oh, I'm interested in the politics of Olympic history. And her response, and I quote, was, oh, Christ, not politics, uh, making it really, really clear that I was there under their sufferance. And when I got there for that visit, uh, a week or so, um, it was very clear that they were showing me their library, but not their archives. It's only later on when I went back to another project, and by which time I doctored to my title and so on, that I was able to see the archives. And that vetting, which really resonates with the experience Nikki and Jeff were talking about yesterday, about embargoes and controlled access, is deeply problematic. And again, a lot of that's down to the fact that this was still private archive, privately controlled. I had to do the research in their meeting room. Uh, the library doubled up as a boardroom. And at one point, I was kicked out for a couple of hours while they had to have meetings. So I just wandered the streets of Wandsworth waiting to be able to go back in. Again, fine, I understand that, but it wasn't great as, an, as a research experience. Although, going back to my previous point, it was great for thinking more about the culture of the organisation. Um, and it's also clear that under these conditions, uh, the BOA had actually lost some of their archive through flooding because they weren't being properly looked after. Now, in 2009-10, with London 2012 just around the corner, the archive moved from this um, privately controlled and frankly inadequate space in Wandsworth to the University of East London, the university closest to the Olympic site at Stratford, where they are now properly cared for and wonderfully built into the, the special collections there through the work of Paul Dudman and his team. And I think there's a quick example there of the archive sector taking it seriously is, 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 uh, is very clear. We can think about things like um, Buckinghamshire Council taking wheelchair sports seriously and again acquiring material. In this case, it's just a screen grab from the, the website of the International Wheelchair Sports Federation, with the archive now properly looked after, properly catalogued, properly accessible. Ian's absolutely right, there is still a very clear case. Of the Paralympics being treated as the correlation, but it's great to see uh, the glam sector doing what it can to, um, to overcome that, uh, that hierarchy. And the same point applies to the National Archives, who in 2011, I think, ready for 2012, set up the, Paralymp the Olympic and Paralympic record with a timeline that allowed you to travel through time and explore activities. Well, obviously a very strong educational um, slant to this site, but it's great resources, you know, great as a starting point for finding out what the National Archives contains um, for Olympic and Paralympic 
historians. And again, I just want us to reflect on the huge range of exhibitions and events across the glam sector that was inspired by and staged during um, 2012. Personal examples are keynoted at the Art Librarians Association Conference in 2012, Art Librarians in the Olympic Year. I gave talks at the National Waterfront Museum in Swansea, the Shipley Art Gallery in Gateshead, and many other points in between. And if we remember some of the exhibitions, such as the, um, the Olympic posters exhibition staged by the Victoria and Albert Museum at the Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green, and then it toured uh, around the country, um, and then with a wonderful book by Margaret Timmers, the text for anyone interested in Olympic design history. Uh, we think of places like the Dulwich Art Dulwich Picture Gallery staging some Olympic art talks, um, the British Museum hosting an exhibition on Paralympic and Olympic medals, um, the British Library staging Olympics, uh, uh, all about collecting the Olympics, a large part of which was devoted to stamps. Um, and it's, it was great to hear Andrew Rackley's talk yesterday. I was Andrew is an external examiner for his PhD, and he explored all of this in such great detail, and it's brilliant to see that work carrying on. However, so yeah, the glam sector has taken um, all of this more seriously with 2012 as a spur. However, it's not universal. Um, let's not forget that we were promised, we were promised an Olympic Museum as part of the legacy of 2012. And I and I know many other people have probably, if they're all like mine, very strange conversations with various people involved in low cost about what an Olympic museum could look like. And so what I've, I've grabbed you here is a 2012 um, uh, headline from the BBC London Museum set to open on park compared to something from just over a year later from Games Monitor exclusive London Olympic Museum plans show and again no name and let's not forget again I won't go into too much detail but uh, there's a very well, very important and famous and well-known sporting organisation which still has its archive in what's little more than an insecure foyer. And many smaller collections remain in non-specialist hands. Cotswold Olympic, a point in the office of the Historical Society, where there's no temperature control, no proper security over what's in there. The Wenlock Olympian Society, their founding minute book, wonderful resource so much including evidence of when Kubasan came to visit Wenlock is in a cupboard albeit a secure one um, in the in a room in the market hall available accessible by appointment only and chaperoned now they have digitized some of it and it's available to read for free on their archive Dropshire archives have um, one of those wonderful old things called a microfiche of it but see the actual thing is still in very very inaccessible private hands and Vicky's comment about her still finding things in boiler rooms um, just you know, really resonated with me on that. Now, it's not remotely my intention to criticize voluntary organizations without these volunteers putting in their own time and their efforts. These things would have ended up in, in, the, in the skip years ago, as happened to so many the things that Ian wanted to find. But I really hope that we can get a greater sense amongst voluntary organizations of the value of working with professional archives to um, preserve originals. Okay, my final theme then is to talk about the digital shift. Um, so as I said, my early days um, as a, were very much pre-digital and 
looking back, I'm just sometimes staggered when you actually stop and take stock at the revolutionary change in methods, access and possibilities over my career. Now, here's a wonderful picture of the reading room. I promise I wasn't researching in it quite when it was looked like that, but it wasn't that different when I was researching there in 87, 88, 89. Um, the British Library still had its own physical catalogue, full of its own mysteries of how that catalogue, which I'm sure some of you will remember, very scrapbook in appearance, that was put together. Still limited by opening hours, still limited by pencil notes. Public record office, as above. And a great example here, I was looking for foreign office involvement in international sport. My just even finding things involved going through the file, the um, index of correspondence, four, vol four volumes per year, going over about a 40 year period, searching under every possible sporting theme, then translating the original foreign office file reference from that index into its public record office call number, then ordering it up and then finding out in about 50% of cases that the actual documents I wanted hadn't survived because whoever had been doing the weeding didn't think support mattered. Pencil notes and photocopying, obviously, for only the most essential working student budget. Now, if we just take the British Library and the National Archives, those two together now, incalculable changes. Your online catalogue searching 24-7 from anywhere where you have an internet connection. Themed collections. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, the, the, the ability to photograph at will. Um, although that, that, of course, can become problematic with, with sort of digital photo dumps, I'm sure we all have. E and digitised versions of some resources. It's utterly impossible to work out time savings in the archive and therefore costs for researchers that this shift has brought us. Um, I remember so clearly using the official report for the 1908 Olympic Games at the British Library, finding it in the scrapbook catalogue, filling in a paper slip, popping it in, dim reading, pencil notes for the most, the best bit which and now I can download for free from LA84 LA with a full text or close interrogation on my desk. Now, I haven't used archives much in the last year because of my teaching leadership commitment. So I know that I'll be a bit left behind when I come out of all this and hearing some amazing things from friends and colleagues and particularly want to know more about digital search rooms. But I'm utterly blown away by the possibilities now. Pio's project yesterday would be unim unimaginable without the um, advances that have been made. Um, some that I dipped into a little bit, things like Layers of London, um, where themed collections take you to spot sites where Olympic events happened, and not yet for, for Olympics, but um, Place Cloud, which my colleague Matt Taylor has done some great sporting uh, stories for. Again, a fantastic resource that links historians, narratives, place, and mapping in really, really accessible um, digital format. Now, of course, digital isn't everywhere. I still make pencil notes. These are some I made in 2019 in the Leicestershire Record Office where photographs on this particular collection were not allowed. And it's doing it that way makes you realise how much you take for granted. But again, don't forget the digital photo dump and how on earth we um, archive and curate our own archives when we, get, when we download from our cameras. Have we lost anything in the digital shift? Um, I'd say yes on serendipity. Um, Harold Abraham's collection was a wonderful one for that, for example, going through personal papers about the administration and politics of sport, mixing in with family postcards and the order of service from his, his memorial. Uh, we lose the tactile element. Again, I'm sure all, most historians do. Part of our fetish for the archives is the fact that you're touching stuff that the players in your story touch. That sense of place, Wenlock for the reading room, 
using the archives at King's College, Cambridge for the Ashby research, knowing that I was treading the same steps that Ashby himself had, had trod as a, as a student there. Um, going to Woodhorn for the industrial legacies of the region helps me understand Morpeth in ways I wouldn't have done if my research desk based. And the Foreign Office Index, for all my criticism of it, that showed me an awful lot about destruction of archives because it told me stuff had originally it had existed, but at some point in the weeding process it had gone. Doesn't mean I could say what had gone, but it could certainly tell me a lot about the uh, criteria of destruction. So yes, we've lost some things, but of course a sensible solution is that we recognise the interplay between the digital and the physical in our research and be realistic about how we flow. And I think a big role here is in advising students, particularly undergrads with very limited budgets and time, in how they can um, get a good balance between uh, finding stuff out on the digital and then, then going to use the physical in the limited time they have. Okay, no formal conclusions. As I said, um, it's more of a, just an observation. It's been last to revisit all this. Um, it's been a, a great uh, exercise for me in reflecting on the subjectivity of the archive as well. And it's also given, I think it's just been so interesting sitting in for the last two days to think about the opportunities we have to collaborate around some fantastic models. Um, Vicky mentioned Dawn Newbury's work, a collaborative doctoral partnership between my centre and the Photographic History Research Centre at De Montfort and the National Paralympic Heritage Trust and projects like this. And Lydia Fursis that just finished between us and the World Rugby Museum are such a great way to um, train a new generation and forge those links. So I didn't really want to do any big conclusions other than those. Oh yeah, and uh, coming home. But what I did want to do is just end with a few challenges, a few things I want to throw out. And these aren't things I've got answers to, um, but I think we could have some really fruitful discussion, bearing in mind we have researchers and land professionals in the room. So my first question, and we can take these in whatever order we want, it doesn't matter if we don't do, do them all, I just think they're all worth considering. My first question is, do we need a national collection? Do we need a National Olympic and Paralympic Museum, study centre, similar one to a, one in Lausanne? What are the pros and cons of this? If we bear in mind that the Olympic Museum's network includes sites in Qatar, Estonia, Peru, Slovakia and Israel, none of which have hosted the Olympics, and we've done them three times, um, I think that is a conversation worth happening, but there are also of course um, major um, potential drawbacks over controlling the narrative that comes from that kind of official branding. So let's think about the, do we need an Olympic Museum as we were promised for 2012. The second thing I want to throw out, and this links into Andrew Rackley's points yesterday about corporate roles and collections really, is about language and branding. We all know that the words Olympic and Paralympic are branded to within an inch of their life. And that you'll get a cease and desist letter if you call anything Olympic, even if you're very clearly not trying to compete with McDonald's or Coca-Cola. But this does throw up interesting challenges for the historical record, particularly when so many things that have happened historically that have nothing to do with Kubatan's project were called Olympic. And so I think it's important for us to think about what do we mean by the word Olympic and how do we maybe um, deal with that retrospective attempts at um, vocabulary grab. And then and my final one is, is about activism. And again, Kyo touched on this yesterday with his mention of Games Monitor. Um, there's an awful lot of anti-Olympic activism out there. All I've done here is grab four very quick um, Twitter feeds uh, opposed to Olympics from 2020, 22, 24 and 28. Um, on the, the No Olympics LA one, if I've gone a little bit further down in my story, I've got a very extensive there. 
they're clearly not big fans of BNB, one of, of Airbnb, uh, the new partner. But, you know, there is this clear anti-Olympism out there. And I'd be really interested to know what people think about how we capture and collect that. I was fascinated when I saw the show behind the scenes at the museum or whatever it's called about the VNA last year on the VNA's rapid response collecting, getting out there, getting ephemera, getting items, getting documents on movements and protests that are very you know, tending to go through this quite quickly. And I'd be intrigued to what people think of this um, kind of rapid response collecting for the Olympics. I think if it happens, it needs to be a historical rescue operation that takes us to Jewish groups opposing the Berlin Olympics, student protests in Mexico, dissident materials in Moscow, human rights materials for Beijing 2008 and Sochi 2014. But it also needs to be a contemporary and a live rescue operation. It needs to be global, multilingual, it needs to be physical, digital, visual and oral, and with so taking due care for the safety of the creators, some of whom are taking great risks in promoting their material. So those are the three things I want to leave you with. The, um, do we need an official Olympic Museum? The issue of historical language and branding, and then the idea of rapid response. So I'll leave it there, and over to you. Great, what a thought-provoking um, presentation. Thank you so much, Martin. And those are some pretty big questions that you've that you've thrown out there for us. Um, so. I'm just going to kind of open it up to the floor, really. Does anyone want to come in? Um, feel free to uh, raise your hand uh, and I'll I'll try and track that. Um, or if anyone wants to just kind of... Can I, can, yeah, go on. Can I just very quickly say, yeah. Ralph, what I'm absolutely the spirit that I want here is very much that it's not everything coming back to me here. Um, yeah, I'd be really interested to, for you to be talking to each other. Yeah, over to you. Okay. Um, and we do have a... A couple of comments that have come in in the in the chat box already as well. Um, so uh, Stuart Paul says that he's involved in projects in Birmingham looking at the legacy of next year's Commonwealth Games, including a new athletics museum. How do we avoid the problems London had setting up a museum? Um, so that obviously relates partly to um, your first kind of challenge about um, sort of national collections. Um, and uh, Andy Rackley from the British Library says that some anti-Olympic sentiment was captured for London 2012 um, and that, uh, uh, yeah, Games Monitor is in UKWA and Museum of London certainly had some fascinating nice. items, um, but it is a challenge. Does anyone want to come in? Can I, can I, sorry, I couldn't find my hand, but well. <laughs> Do come in, Ian, yes. <laughs> um, sorry, I was, I was just going to sort of, I'm not sure if this is really kind of, uh, well, it definitely isn't an answer, but just I'm um, sort of thinking about the kind of, do we need a national collection? I think, I think one of the great strengths um, of, of kind of collecting institutions kind of in both kind of, museums and libraries, gallery sector and, 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 and across kind of universities and, and so on in the, in, in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, 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 a strong network and a kind of dispersed nature of collections, but real kind of centres of excellence, which is the kind of thing that we've seen um, in, in the presentations um, over the past couple of days. And I guess one of the challenges for us is around um, visibility and connecting up. So, I mean, it's great if you know where everything is, but if you don't, that's kind of, you know, can be a barrier, especially for someone kind of starting out. 
Um, and, and I kind of know um, kind of AHRC at the moment, Arts and Humanities Research Council have kind of a program called Towards a National Collection, which is kind of about what are the kind of big infrastructure challenges um, yeah. for linking up collections. Um, and, and certainly kind of language is, is one of those, you know, kind of how we describe and how we kind of deal with um, a kind of legacy of, of kind of catalogue descriptions and so on is, 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 is part of that. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess kind of recognising the strengths that we already have and, and kind of thinking about how we better take advantage of that for researchers, I think is, 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 is a real key point. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. I think that the, the last two days have been so, so important for that. For that. Yeah sharing about the as you say the sort of areas of excellence and strength can i maybe throw it out to anyone who has visited olympic museums in other countries have any any insights from you on you know what happens when the story of the olympics is told in museum form by the you know by, by the people who own the story if you like i've been to a few but i'd be really intrigued because i'm sure people there's people in the room have been to um some that i haven't been to be interesting to get any perspective Feel free to unmute yourself, anyone, and come in yeah. at this point. Um, hi. Um, oh, yeah. Where am I? Yeah, it's not necessarily about that, but I'm thinking about London 2012 because I yeah, did have exactly. a. I, I had a participation in that as a tourist guide. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was a there was special training that you could take as a guide to London, um, which was very much the narrative of that was very much controlled by um, the Olympic Games, the people who were running the Olympic Games, but also sponsors of the games. And so I started to run tours where I partly guided on site um, while the Olympic Park was being developed, but I also took my clients to. Uh, bow in East London um, because I wanted to present two um, two sides of the story um, that you the kind of the Blackwall Tunnel Road kind of separated very much acted as a physical divide between um, one part of East London and this other sort of shiny new piece of East London but then I also interviewed guides after the games to ask them about the training that they received and what their kind of perception of it was, but also the person who was running the training. And I've got to say that out of all of the people I interviewed, I was the only one who had a kind of critical eye towards the narrative that we were, we were being held. And so I think that does feed into the idea of this official museum because an official line is already being created while, you know, while the event is being planned and executed. And I think it's a really interesting point that you make that we also need to think about um, the opposition to these these events and um, as historians we have to really really be careful to factor that into any account that we give of, of that's really interesting thanks jeff yeah sorry Do, can we extend the glam network to include tour guides i think we should um <laughs> but uh yeah no that's that's, yes, that's so. yeah. yeah yeah thanks I've seen a question from Verity. Sorry, Verity. It sounds brilliant, but I know absolutely nothing about archiving digital dialogue. It sounds like we should. Is anybody in the room able to answer Verity's question on how do we 
So um, the challenges of archiving official or unofficial emails, Slack, Teams dialogue between individuals and institutions. Any insights there? So Verity, I guess you're linking that to um, Olympic teams, I'm not sure. Um, what, what kind of organisations do you have in mind there? You're muted, Verity. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's just connected to the, it's interconnecting some of the themes that you were saying about the opportunities of digital and then some of the other comments about the opportunities of having like digital networks. Um, just with my researcher hat on and someone already has already said that there's going to be a lot around Birmingham Commonwealths is will there be like a loss of archives if we don't have some form of procedure or process that re researchers are aware of of how to capture official unofficial different sporting institutions dialogue around the games because often in sort of like my experience of looking at IOC uh, Commonwealth archives from sort of the 80s uh, back it's the stuff in the in the edges it's the stuff scribbled in pencil and I guess the equivalent of that now is is the digital scribbles so it, it's more sort of a play on that sort of combining your opportunity of digital with mm. whether that's a challenge or not um granted I don't expect you to answer it but just to sort of throwing it out as an odd question comment absolutely thanks thanks for it. um and Andrew I don't want to put you on the spot but do you have any insight on that about archiving the, the digital scribbles uh, shall I? Ian, um, yeah, 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 sure, sorry, um, go on. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, I, I was thinking that question when you're talking about digital shift, because that's often kind of what we're thinking about there is also kind of the challenge. And I think it does talk back to kind of Ian's talk yesterday um, about people and organisations not realising the worth of what it is they have. Um, and I think that with, with Digital, I think, is very, very much a challenge. Um, and, and and kind of how to manage that. Um, I, I know kind of we've we've been thinking about it more from a kind of literary archives perspective and, and have taken in um, collections that include things like email correspondence and um, the, the kind of files, working files and working papers, I think from some literary and some scientific archives. I don't think we've done any kind of around sports sports associations yet. Um, and, and certainly kind of with the web archive, it's, it's challenging because we're looking at the kind of public communication. So we kind of explicitly say we're not collecting private channels of communication um, there. Um, but it's, it's something, yes, archives are working on and working with kind of universities on how to do it, but it's kind of it is early stages and and there is, it's real kind of at risk because you know because there are so many dependencies, not just on the, the information itself, but the software it runs on and the hardware that that, that, that runs on as well. So yeah, early days. We're looking kind of a number of institutions looking Thank at you. it from from different. Andy, did you want to add anything? Not, not really. I think Ian is actually better placed to answer that than I am because he's much more involved in the, in the uh, actual archiving side of things. Um, but yeah, as, as mentioned, I think the um, Ian's equivalent within our manuscript and literary archives is addressing that, though, as he said, not specifically within uh, the framework of sport. So, yeah, it's an ongoing, challenging question. I see that uh, Kevin has put a comment in the chat. 
about he says to me a risk of a national collection is who controls or curates it um so firms like sainsbury's have put their archives into museums but tightly controlled which archives are made available um i'm, I'm sort of thinking from a cricketing perspective martin um about two challenges uh, two two about i think that this kind of links two of your challenges in a way does cricket count as would cricket any cricket record make it into an olympics collection if we had one for example um and obviously there is now this push to get cricket reintroduced into the olympics um and we have we asked seeing women's cricket coming into the um into the commonwealth next year um and so you know what which sports count as olympic sports i suppose and then and then our lord's going to suddenly turn around and say okay well we'll put some of our stuff in um in an olympic collection rather than because i think that the real issue with when i've um kind of discussed this idea of having a national sports museum with with people or a national sports archive the big um the big issue that crops up is about kind of parochial around individual sports isn't it rather than and and that does um almost to link that to kevin's comment it is about um different governing bodies wanting to retain control um so that's that's an issue as well i think um of course lord itself was an olympic site for archery in in, in 2012 but yeah you're absolutely right I, I think a big thing for me is you know the, the one of the, the beauties of olympic history and just olympic here we probably tell the same stories about Paralympics, but I don't know the events in enough detail. Is that, that you know it's a constant, it's a history of constant experimentation and reinvention. And yes, cricket was in for a bit and then it went. Motorboat racing was in in 1908. But you know, the, the charter now is the rules are now very strictly against any motorized sport. And you know, I'd, I'd love for the, that, that greater, if you like, openness to how experimental of its time the games have always been would be a much more interesting narrative than the very Whiggish one we get. But yeah, but ultimately, um, Rath, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, you know, good luck to the archivist who, well, it'd be easier now than it would have been 20 years ago, but good luck to the archivist who tries to convince both the you know, rugby union and rugby legal authorities that all of their archives should be under one roof, for example. So yeah, you always have the politics and the parochial. And sorry, I saw a comment in the sidebar which was talking about the, um, from Kevin, um, that the you know if if an archivist is only coming with a sporting lens they might not keep the business ones really really good point of Kevin. Thanks for that. does anyone have any more thoughts that they want to share on any of martin's challenges yeah. or anything else very quickly while we're waiting just say um ian wonderful thanks the human rights mega event there that's a really interesting story and again being sold for educational rights and david la84 thank you I've never been physically, but I use it in, I use the um, digital archive all the time uh, for the official reports in particular. And yeah, absolutely brilliant. It was also a really great example of an Olympic legacy in action. Thanks for that. And Brett. I think some of you, so, been, sorry, Martin, to interrupt. Yeah, I know we've talked about the difference between visiting archives in person and uh, using digital materials that we have access to nowadays. Uh, I, I thought I'd share that when I did my PhD, I didn't have access to travel either, as I couldn't afford to go anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, and so most of my research was done actually by post. So I would write to archivists and they would copy things, we'd talk mm -hmm. on the phone, and then they would send me copies yeah. of the documents. So I, so I had uh, I've sort of got copies yeah. of everything that I used in my research at Brilliant. that time because I couldn't afford to actually go anywhere very um, much. So sometimes it's the 
the archivists themselves, which yeah. is really helpful because they know the collections and they know what's in it. And it's about asking the right questions yeah. to get the, the right materials. Yeah, uh, the, the other thing that uh, was interesting, we talked about uh, collections being held by people or organ official organizations that might have a, a bias because of it reflects on their reputation. And I remember when I first wrote something about must be 30 years ago, it was about uh, yeah. Thomas Cook and travel. And the quotation that always gets reproduced and continues to do so is that he had some kind of revelation on the road between Market Harbour and Leicester, which inspired him to, to do that. But it misses out the important bits about who it was that inspired him to have that revelation. And Thomas Cook as a company actually complained to the local paper after, I'd, after something about my research had appeared. Uh, so uh, more or less telling me to shut up it's not the real story but hopefully now we've got the archives which are independently held in Leicestershire yeah, records. Um, I mean, who, who wouldn't be inspired on a trip from Market Harbour to Leicester um <laughs> no absolutely I think a big one for me to bring that back that's a great example and, and thanks for bringing that back to Olympic stuff is the way in which Kubertan sort of airbrushed March Wenlock out of his story so then just made references to an English county an English country doctor Whereas, you know, go back to the archives that much went up itself and they put on a special, a special edition of the games for him. They put him up in a really nice hotel when he comes to visit. Um, and they, yeah, they, 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 he plants an oak tree and waters it in with champagne, which is still there and still has a plaque. And of course, the cutting was taken from that to be planted in the garden at 2012. And, you know, that narrative from the Wenlock view is that Kubertan was interested in sport, came here and went away convinced that he should revive the Olympics. And then the IOC view as well. He had a chat with a doctor, but yeah, it was all his idea. And so getting those two voices together is such a, such a valuable part. Again, challenging the official narrative. I'm seeing some good stuff being said about Australia. Thanks, Dawn. Brilliant. And there was a comment about the National Sports Museum at the yeah. MCG, which brilliant. I have From been Brett. to and is brilliant. I agree. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks, Brett and Dawn for those. Does anyone else want to come in? Don't feel tied by the challenge I threw out there. That's just a thought. Any, any, I'm happy to respond to any questions now. You're all warming up for the England match, aren't you? <laughs> I have one question, which perhaps some of the archivists uh, in the audience would, would be able to answer. Because we have digital access to so many resources, some obviously not all of them need to be online because they're not used so often. Could, uh, I know this already happens, but could facsimile copies of things which have already been digitised and used be deposited within local archives so that more people can have access to them afterwards. So if I've printed out a whole volume which I've paid for, for instance, from uh, the, the National Archive, could I then give it to another local archive so someone else could use it rather than throw it away if I no longer wanted it? I don't know about the copyright of them once you've got the material. I could try wading in to some of that, but I'll probably get 
that's a bit wrong. Um, and the, 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 you're right, the, the rights issues can, can get really, really tricky, um, partly because, you know, just because an institution holds um, the records, they might not hold the rights in the records mm. as well. Um, often, often that's not the case, the rights may well reside with, with the original institution. Um, so kind of clearing that and clearing reuse can get quite hard. Um, I think also, I think um, just the kind of resources issue for um, all kind of archives and libraries and, and, and kind of local archives that are not immune to this as well, um, is, is, is such that there's, there's more of a desire to focus on what's not being managed anywhere else mm -hmm. than to kind of hold and make available copies of something that is in, already in an archive. I think there's, there's kind of more of a desire to kind of make sure people are aware of where the archive is held rather than hold facsimiles, just because it's, it's just simply a kind of resource question in, in, in the end of that. But I appreciate that, that you know, there, there are kind of additional costs to kind of not having a local copy. And I think, I mean, a lot of kind of archives and libraries are trying to use digitization as a way of enabling that kind of wider and more remote access. Um, often there are kind of like steps along the way. Um, but, but, but I think that's kind of where the goal is rather than trying to kind of lodge copies in, in, in more than one place. I see that James has put in the chat about mobile heritage exhibitions like Yorkshire County Cricket Club driving around the country in a van. Um, there was some really interesting um, panels at the, the Sporting Heritage Conference, which was all online a few months ago, um, about the way in which different um, kind of sporting archive collections and heritage collections have, um, have sort of um, have managed and, and almost uh, kind of showcase best practice during the pandemic um and I, I know that i was on a panel with vicky hope walker i don't know if she's still in the room um and uh the national paralympic heritage trust have done a really good job of that if i may say so are you there vicky <laughs> don't think she is anyway um so <laughs> rough yeah hi it's, hi it's it's kind of cute here uh, sorry i had to leave uh, martin there for a few minutes but I had a I had a um a question in the chat. Uh in 1908 Olympics, um my grandfather's friend, Joshua Miller, won a gold medal for shooting. And I'm just wondering, uh, is was he in that photograph that Martin showed at the beginning? He um he we have his gold medal actually on his in even his target. But unfortunately we've nowhere to place it here because the for a country that's mad, the Republic of Ireland, mad sports country. We don't have a sports museum and there's no interest in one so maybe yeah. i'll maybe i'll hand it over to you thanks ken ken i can't answer the question now but i'll look i'll look in detail at that picture and yeah. compare it to the 1908 report and i'll get back to you I think. And, and the other thing martin is really interesting my eagle eye has spotted a flag yellow in that in that in that collage that's there the photograph you showed um there's a flag yeah. in that i think it's the uh aaron gabra flag that it was is. flown over the gpo in 1916. It's amazing, yeah, because yeah. that would have been a gesture of, of protest at that time in 1908. Absolutely. Bear with me for a minute. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know who damages were trying to please there. Um, absolutely. I'll, I'll get you know, you're right. So there's a union flag and then the heart, both yeah. bang central. Um, again, I know this is a longer story and you'll know far more about it than I will, Ken, but obviously there's 
from the previous Olympics at St. Louis in 1994, where there was a debate about which flag should be flying first. Yeah, for Irish athletes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. That's a really important statement. Yeah. I look back, I've got a, I've got a nice printout of the of the picture. Yeah. It, it, here's what I made earlier, everyone. I'll, <laughs> I'll have a proper look in that and see if I can find find your man there. Thanks. Yeah, I I pleaded up for you and I sent you an email just to just to clarify. All right. See you later. Take Thanks. care. Take care. All right. Thanks, Ken. Okay. Well. Thanks for. Thanks for plugging your book, Martin. That's great. It's always, it's always good. <laughs> Leave a copy from me um, as well. <laughs> we did say that we'd wrap up at half past four, I think. And I've just looked at the time and it's 4.40. Um, so uh, did can, we say Raph, that? Sorry, Raph, can I just very quickly, because I see, yeah. um, uh, where are we? There was a question before James about 1900 Olympics. Oh, yes. Yeah, um, from Olivia. Yeah. From Olivia, yes. I mean, I can just, Olivia, I can give a tiny answer. It's very difficult. Uh, obviously, because that, from the British perspective, that predates the POA. That wasn't formed until 1905. So any British people who were there were through club or personal connections. Um, there's fairly decent British press coverage. But then the most, most spectacular thing that stands out is they, they don't, don't really know that it's Olympic. They, they just talk about, most of them talk about games, sports being held in connection to the exhibition. Um, and then there is, if you, the National Archives does have, in the UK, has a lot of um, material on the whole exhibition. So books of what was going on, who was on the organising committee, um, and the people organise um, displays at the exhibition. I've gone through them not in, in minute detail, but in better than a skin, and I can't find anything about the Olympics. They were clearly such a footnote to those games. Um, so, sorry, that's not much of an answer other than to say you're absolutely right. They're somewhat lost to history. Uh, happy if anyone knows of anything else. I don't know if um, Elaine, if any of your polytechnic people were competing at the um, at the 1900 Olympics. Feel free to come in, anyone on that. And then we've got a shout out for Ipswich Town. Thanks, Richard. Looks good. Sorry, I was saying, I was just having a quick look actually in our Polytechnic magazine um, to see if anything got mentioned, but I can't see anything obvious, okay, I'm afraid. No Sorry. And so Ipswich Town Heritage. Thanks for that, Richard. That looks good. Oh, does anyone have any more, uh, any more thoughts or comments? Yeah, so the, the message uh, to try from MMH to try um, the Olympics at the Centre in Lausanne for anything on 1900. Okay, um, I think that I will uh, wrap things up there, um, if that's okay, Martin. Um, as I said, we are we are slightly over time, and I guess that um, that people may have other things to do that may or may not revolve around uh, 22 people kicking a football around. Um, <laughs> So it's been um, it's been a really enjoyable couple of days. Um, so I'd like to um, just wrap up really by saying thank you so much for all of our speakers yesterday and today. Um, and thank you to all of you for tuning into this event. Um, we do hope that you've enjoyed it um, and um, we will be uh, 
um, tweeting about the event recording from our BSSH Twitter account. And I also think that we'll, we'll be circulating the link to the, the eventual podcast with the recording, um, emailing that round to everyone. So, so do look out for that. And if you've enjoyed the two days, then do share it. Um, thank you so much for all your contributions. Um, and goodbye for now.